Please turn your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Let me read Jesus' teaching on prayer for us this morning. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to this moment with expectation that we will hear you speak to us. Lord, we believe that where your word is rightly preached, your word is, your voice is clearly heard. So Lord, would you help me to rightly preach that we might hear, clearly hear your voice, open our hearts that we might be ready to listen and receive and respond. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Imagine that you are a fifth grader in Mrs. McCree's Sunday school class. And to celebrate the year together, Mrs. McCready has planned a picnic for the first Saturday in June. Class is really excited about this, and everything is being planned, but you can plan for everything but the weather. So the class begins to pray for sunshine on the first Saturday in June. Why wouldn't God answer a prayer for a Sunday school picnic? Unbeknownst to the class, Farmer Brown lives 20 miles west where he has 100, 100 acres of farmland, mostly growing corn. It has been an unusually dry spring, so the corn crop is in danger. Farmer Brown knows he cannot control the weather, but he is a devout Christian. And so he begins to pray for rain in the month of June. Now, if you're God, whose prayer do you answer? Do you provide sunshine for the Sunday school picnic, or do you provide rain for Farmer Brown? Imagine how many conflicting prayer requests every day God receives. I mean, what about two Christian baseball teams? Eastern Christian is playing Hawthorne Gospel, and they're both praying for the win. <laughs> Whose prayer do you answer? Or two Christian salespeople, one from Verizon and one from AT&T, both bidding for the same job, both needing the sale and, and praying for it. Whose prayer do you answer? I would suggest that all these scenarios are problems if prayer is fundamentally about God meeting our requests and our desires. How can he possibly manage all the conflicts in desires and requests? And yet this is many, how many people see prayer. Prayer is essentially, for many people, a way to twist God's arm into meeting their requests, of getting God on board with their own plans and desires. And I think it's a telltale sign that we slipped into this mentality when we only pray when we're in, in trouble. And we don't pray when life is going well. We don't pray. We don't feel a need for prayer. It's only when we're in trouble and we, we, need, we can't bail ourselves out do we pray. It's a telltale sign that God has become for us just a means to our own ends, just an accessory to our own success. This morning we've been going through the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase, and we're considering another phrase in the Lord's Prayer, this phrase, your will be done, which I think challenges our mentality and approach to prayer. 
Many of you will essentially see prayer as a way of saying to God, my will be done. Could you help me out, Lord? But in this phrase, Jesus is teaching us that prayer is essentially saying to God, your will be done. And as, as I've been saying over the past few weeks, the first three petitions are really all fundamentally about God, not fundamentally about us. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This morning, I'd like to consider the third petition. Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done. As a way of teaching us that prayer fundamentally is not about trying to bend God to our will, but bending our will to God. Of course, it does not mean that praying about our needs is wrong. We're going to consider next week the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. But what Jesus is saying is that your will be done is prior. Before we get to petitions, he's teaching us to surrender before the Lord and his will. Theologians, when they talk about God's will, talk about it in two senses. On the one hand, there is the secret sovereign will of God, God's decree by which he governs all things. I could read many verses here, but I'll read one. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? You can read many verses. That's just one. God's secret sovereign will, his decree by which he governs all that happens in this world. That's one sense in which the Bible talks about God's will, but the other sense is in the sense of God's revealed moral will, his commands for us. And I think this is the way that the, the Lord's Prayer considers God's will. It's in this third petition. May your will be done. It's God's moral will, his commands that are always not always followed on earth. I mean, read the newspaper. Watch the news. Look at our own lives. When we pray for God's will to be done, we are praying that, God would, that, that we would live according to God's revealed moral will. That we would surrender to God in these areas. Jesus is teaching us to pray your will be done. I want to unpack that for us this morning and understand it by considering three questions. Why we don't pray this, how we can, and what it looks like. So there's a, there's a why, there's a how, and there's a what. Why we don't pray this, how we can, and what it looks like. First, why we don't pray this. Praying your will be done is fundamentally a prayer of surrender. Here's John Wesley's prayer of surrender. He says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. I think your will be done. This is a similar prayer of surrender to that, John Wesley's prayer of surrender. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 103, says, what do we pray for in this petition? The answer is this. In the third petition, which is, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God would by his grace make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Psalm 103 gives us a glimpse. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. 
Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you servants who do his will. I might imagine that when God God's, makes his will known in heaven, there is this rushing sound of thousands of angelic wings beating as the angels go off to fulfill God's will, to carry it out in heaven. God's will is carried out with joy. Not procrastination, not the dragging of feet, not the murmuring behind the boss's back, but immediately, obediently, joyfully. That's what we're praying for in this petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says there are two parts of this prayer, the matter, doing God's will, and the manner, how we do God's will. Joyfully, obediently. I think we begin to see why we don't pray this petition. I would suggest that this is perhaps the hardest petition in the Lord's Prayer because it is a prayer of surrender and submission. This petition goes against the grain of our culture. Submission and surrender in our culture are kind of dirty words. Because the goal of our lives, so we're taught, is to you be you. Follow your desires. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or what to be. Demand your rights. This, goes, this petition goes against the grain of our culture. Perhaps more searchingly, the Bible also teaches that this petition goes against the grain of our nature apart from God. You see, since Adam sinned in the garden as a representative head of the human race, it means we are born into a, into a sin nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You see, we're, we're born into this world infected by sin. Not with a genetic defect, but with a, with a moral defect. We're all, all born into this world with a moral defect that teaches us, that guides us, so that we each say to God essentially what Adam and Eve said in the garden when they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. They were essentially saying to God, my will, not yours, be done. Romans 3, 11 puts it this way. There is none righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. This is the nature that we're born into this world with. Sin is declaring independence from God. Autonomy from God. It's, it's rebellion. It's saying, no, I want my will, not yours. And we can rebel actively. We can shake our fists against God, or we can rebel passively. We just ignore God and do what we want. But either way, it's our sin nature that drives us to want independence from God. I don't want your control. I, I don't want your, your authority in my life. I want to be autonom autonomous from you. I want to be independent from you. That's why we don't pray this. It's because of our nature apart from God. We don't want to surrender to him. We don't want to submit to his authority. We don't like limits on our nature, right? I mean, everyone is telling us that we can be whoever we want. We can do whatever we want. Don't let anyone crush your dreams. Now, that's great to an extent, but there, there are limits to our nature. For example, here, here's an example of that. Just recently at the Chicago Marathon, a new marathon record was set, shattering, and I mean shattering, the old one. The Kenyan runner, Kelvin Kiptum, finished the Chicago Marathon in two hours and 35 seconds, 
breaking the previous record of Eliud Kipchoge by a whopping 34 seconds. In setting this record, Kiptum averaged uh, per mile 4 minutes 30, 36 seconds per mile for 26 miles. And he sped up in the second half of the race, running a nearly, uh, a nearly a minute faster in the second half of the race than the first. And, and I hear that, and I say, like, that, that is, that's superhuman. I mean, I can't even run one mile in four minutes and 36 seconds, let us own 26. And I dare say, that, that's most people. No matter how much I want to run a marathon in two hours and 35 seconds, I can't do it. No matter how much I train to run a marathon in two hours and 35 seconds, I don't think I'll be able to do it. I dare say, it's not in my nature to run a marathon in two hours. My body and my will are not made to do that. Now, here's another illustration of the same, perhaps a better illustration. In the natural world, there are animals that eat nothing but meat. They're called carnivores. That means that in their nature, they're only meat eaters. That's all they eat. And so imagine taking a lion who is a carnivore and placing a bundle of hay in front of him, saying, eat up. Well, he will not eat it, not because he's physically or naturally unable. I mean, physically, I mean, he could eat the hay and swallow it. But he does not and will not because it's not in his nature to eat that kind of food. And if you were able to have a conversation with the lions, they're like, well, you know, I put this hay in front of you. I prepared it for you. Why, why aren't you eating it? He would say, I won't eat this food because I hate it. I only eat meat. In the same way, you see, the Bible says it's not in our nature apart from God to surrender to him. It's not, not in our, our nature. We have no desire to do this. It's like running a, a marathon in two hours. It's like a lion eating hay. Our nature says, on our own, apart from God, we say, I can't, I won't. I don't desire this. Not interested, sorry. You see, to surrender to God, we need a new nature. We need a new heart. It's what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is fundamentally not praying a prayer or making a decision. It is that, but fundamentally it's not that. Fundamentally becoming a Christian is becoming a new person, getting a new nature and a new heart. So you're not the same person. I mean, you, you look the same on the outside, but you have a, a new heart and new desires. That's why Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. See, we don't surrender to God apart from a work of grace, his grace in our hearts. To pray this prayer, your will be done, requires us first to come to Christ, who can give us a new nature and a new heart. And then this new heart, we have new desires. Instead of rebelling against God, we love him and we want to surrender to him. Yet secondly, I think we still need to talk about how we can pray this. We still need to talk about this because even with a new heart, it is still a struggle to surrender to God. There is enough of our old nature still present that we still want to say, no, God, sorry, my will. I want my will. And so how can we pray instead, your will be done? I think we need to see this prayer petition in the context of the Lord's Prayer. See, this is not the first petition that Jesus teaches us to pray. It's not the first thing that we say is your will be done. Jesus is not calling us to submit and surrender to a stranger. No, we're first, we first pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And only then are we taught to surrender. And I think that makes all, the order 
makes all the difference. Let me show you what I mean. If you first understand God as your Father in heaven, I think it enables you to surrender to him. Because who is a father? Who is a good father, a model father? A good father is wiser and stronger than their child. Moreover, they love and want the best for their child. And so it's in the best interest of the child to surrender to a father like that. I mean, imagine if a child had no father, no, no good parent to say to them on occasion, honey, that's not really good for you. you I, I'd like to give you something better than, than that. If, you, if a child can always do whatever they want, whenever they want, I mean, they, they will not grow up to be a, a wise, mature adult. How much more with God as our Heavenly Father, who is infinitely wiser and infinitely stronger and who loves us infinitely and wants the best for us. When my daughters were young, I remember this moment taking them to a local community fair. You can imagine, you've been to these fairs, there's food, there's rides, there's games, there's celebration. And I remember bringing my two girls, when they were very young, to this community fair, and they saw the Ferris wheel, and that's all they wanted to ride. And I knew that they would not like it. I knew that they would be scared at the top when the Ferris wheel stops and you're teetering. Like, I'm scared. I knew they would be scared. And so I said, you know, um, there are better rides. I knew there were better rides for them. There was a flying dinosaur ride. There was a spinning teacup ride. But, you know, they would not, uh, they would not be refused. They, they only wanted to ride the Ferris wheel. And so I finally had to get down on their level to explain it to them. And then I realized. I mean, they're fear, you know, three feet off the ground, surrounded by adults. All they could see was, like, elbows and knees. And the only ride they could see was the Ferris wheel. They couldn't see anything else. And that's why they wanted to ride it. Eventually, they, they submitted, and, and we had, they, they loved the rides. We went on the dinosaur, a flying dinosaur ride in the spinning teacup. I realized it's only as an adult I could see better than they could. They, they were just blind to the other possibilities. I, as an adult, I could see the other possibilities and what was good for them. Our Heavenly Father sees better and knows better from his perspective. That ought to enable our surrender to him. When we first hallow God's name, it enables surrender. Because again, what does hallowing God's name mean? It means recognizing his holiness and glory and transcendence. You remember when Isaiah entered into the holy transcendent presence of God? What was the response? He became aware of the depths of his sin. He was convicted by his sin, and then he surrendered to God. Remember, here am I, send me. When we first hallow God's name, it enables surrender. And then when we first pray God's kingdom come, I think that also enables surrender. Because when we pray this prayer, God's kingdom come, which we considered last week, it means a recognition of God establishing his rule and reign on the earth. If God's kingdom is coming, if God will establish his rule and reign, on this earth, it makes sense to surrender to him now. One day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's coming. It makes sense then to gladly bend our knee to him now. I don't know if you remember this moment in the first Lord of the Rings movie, the Council of Elrond. They are trying to decide what to do with a ring. And Boromir says, let Gondor use it against Sauron. And Aragorn disagrees and says that no one can afford to use the evil ring. It must be destroyed. 
And Boromir says, what does a ranger like you know? And Legolas steps in and says, he is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Kildir's heir, the heir to the throne of Gondor. You owe him your allegiance. My friends, when you realize that God is the king, and he's bringing his kingdom and will establish it on earth, you owe him your allegiance. You see, how can we pray your will be done? It's by realizing that God is our heavenly father. He is the holy one in the universe. And he is the coming king. Our culture doesn't like to surrender or submit. I don't like to surrender or submit. But in my observation, there is one moment in our culture when everyone gladly surrenders. It's that moment when you first fall in love. In the 90s, I was a college pastor, and so I saw up close, firsthand, in person, what it looks like when people fall in love, especially college guys. They are willing to submit and surrender almost anything for their beloved. I saw guys who were not musical, who could not sing or carry a tune, learn guitar and write a song and sing it for their beloved. I saw one guy who spent hours learning how to make a dozen roses out of tissue paper. He didn't just go out and buy a dozen roses. He learned how to make a dozen of roses out of tissue paper for the one he loved. My friends, I think it's true for all of us. We all remember that moment and how you felt. That first moment you fell in love. We all surrender for love and beauty. In that moment, there's nothing we wouldn't give up, nothing we wouldn't do for the one that we love. It's the words of Marvin Gaye. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high. Ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you, if you need me, call me. No matter where you are, no matter how far, don't worry, baby. Just call my name. I'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry. Glad surrender. Glad submission. For the sake of love and beauty. And the point I'm trying to make to us is in the same way, when you experience the love and beauty of God, his fatherliness, his holiness, his kingship, there ought to be glad surrender. So then thirdly, what does it look like? Jesus, I think, not only teaches us to pray, your will be done, he shows us what it looks like. In the passage that Chris read for us, Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we heard Jesus pray this prayer. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He prayed that three times. And as he prayed it, the gospel writers tell, tell us that he was sorrowful and troubled and his face, he prayed this with his face in the ground as a way of, of saying he struggled. This prayer of submission, surrender, was a struggle for Jesus. And so the first thing it teaches us is that there is struggle involved, even for Jesus. Hebrews 5.8 says Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. See, that, that experience of struggle is where we learn obedience and surrender. My friends, it's where God's will crosses our will. 
when God tells us something we don't want to hear, that's the test of surrender. See, if you only surrender to God where you agree, that may not be surrender. That just may be agreement. We found a place where we agree, God, that's great. That's not surrender. That's disagreement. The test of surrender is those points where God's will crosses yours. Then what do you do? That's the test of surrender. Not when it's easy. Jesus prayed and wished that there was another way. He said, may this cup pass from me. Jesus was fearful and anxious, not just about the physical suffering of the cross, but the spiritual suffering, bearing the full weight of our sin, facing the full brunt of God's wrath over human sin, and enduring the depths of hell for our sake. That's the punishment of sin, and that's what Jesus endured. That's why he struggled, and yet he surrendered. Jesus teaches us that there is struggle involved, and yet he also teaches us that it's okay to express your desires to God. Jesus did. Jesus said to God, may this cup pass from me. But it doesn't mean that God will always meet our desires. He didn't with Jesus. The the cup didn't pass from Jesus. And so surrender happens even when God doesn't answer the prayer the way that we want him to. Surrender happens even when our prayer brings greater suffering into our life. That's what happened to Jesus. He prayed and greater suffering came. And so you say, well, like, why would I ever pray this? This prayer of surrender. Jesus also teaches us what God does through our surrender. You see, Jesus struggled to surrender, but look at what God accomplished through his surrender. Through his surrender, God accomplished something utterly beautiful. Redemption, the redemption of his people, the salvation of the weak, the freeing of slaves, grace for the least and the lost, something truly and utterly beautiful through Jesus' surrender to the cross. And what enabled Jesus' surrender to God was he foresaw that, that beauty, that good. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because Jesus surrendered for us, We can surrender for him. Because God can do the same when we surrender. He can use our surrender to accomplish something utterly and profoundly beautiful. Sarah Young is the author of the well-known devotional book, Jesus Calling. She recently passed away. And I read a tribute to her life written by her daughter. It's a very interesting story. Sarah Young did not become a Christian until later in life. She went to Wellesley College and majored in philosophy in pursuit of truth and purpose. But she didn't find any answers there that satisfied her and in her disillusionment and waywardness in the years after college. Her brother suggested that she read Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason. And as she was reading that book, she encountered truth for the first time. She ended up traveling to Labrie, which is Francis Schaeffer's ministry in Switzerland, where she became a Christian. Sarah Young, on the heels of that, decided to attend Covenant Seminary, which is the PCA seminary. I went there for my doctor of ministry. She earned a degree there in counseling and biblical studies and met her husband there, Steve Young, who had grown up on the mission field in Japan and was headed back there after seminary. So she married him, and together they went. They, their missions work took them to Japan and then to Australia, with the PCA, with our denomination. 
But in 2001, Sarah began to experience symptoms that were first diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome and then Lyme disease. She went from being an active lover of the outdoors to being mostly homebound due to increasing fatigue, flu-like symptoms, vertigo, and food and skin allergies. She discovered that if she tried to go out and do physical activity, her symptoms would only get worse and really become unbearable. As time went on and her faith did not improve, her ability to do traditional missionary work as she had planned and counseling decreased. She could not do those. But God started bringing her into providing a new ministry in her life through writing and prayer. Even before she got sick, she had started to spend longer and longer times with God, praying and reading scripture and journaling, which had become her lifeline, especially as she got sick. She switched her journal writing, interestingly, from a monologue to a dialogue where she would write from her perspective and then she would write God's perspective back to her. She started to organize her journal writing into a devotional and began sharing it with friends who needed encouragement. In God's providence, that devotional ended up in the hands of an editor's wife and it led to the first edition of Jesus Calling being published in 2004 with little fanfare or expectation. But God went on to use her writing and prayer ministry in an incredible way. Readers over the years would report that, the, that what they read on a certain day in the devotional was exactly what they needed to hear and applied perfectly to their circumstance, the circumstance, the circumstance that they were facing. Her books ended up changing thousands of lives and ended up selling over 45 million copies. And in the tribute, her daughter writes this. Though Sarah sought to find physical healing through prayer and a multitude of medical treatments, it eventually became clear that God's plan for her did not include healing from her physical ailments. Time and time again, she would try a medical treatment that promised hope only to be disappointed with a lack of improvement. This roller coaster ride of hope and disappointment characterized the last 22 years of her life. Despite this, she never lost her faith, and she never doubted that God loved her. She herself saw that her years of suffering and physical discomforts were vital in allowing her to write in a way that spoke to other people who were going through their own hardships. Sarah Young surrendered to God. She surrendered to a sickness that God didn't heal. She surrendered to a lifestyle that she didn't choose or want. She surrendered to a different ministry than she had planned. And through her surrender, God used her in a profound way, far beyond her expectations. I ask, this, ask us this morning, how is God calling us to surrender? Where is Jesus teaching us to pray this prayer? Your will be done. Perhaps it's surrender to God. Perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning, and you've lived life on your own, but you come to realize, I need a Heavenly Father, and I need a good King in my life. And God is calling you to surrender to Him. Perhaps surrender means accepting suffering that God has not chosen to take away. Or it's accepting a circumstance that is not part of your plan. 
or to accept, accepting a, an identity that God has given you that you don't like. Or strengths and weaknesses that you wouldn't choose. I don't like these strengths and weaknesses. I'd rather be that person. It's accepting who God has made you to be. Perhaps it's not giving in to sexual desires that lead in a direction that God doesn't want. It's surrendering and submitting to his moral plan for your life. Perhaps it's accepting a vocation or a marriage that you're in that you desperately would like to change, but there's not that opportunity. My friends, Jesus teaches and models costly surrender as the pathway to life and blessing. It's the cross that leads to beauty. And so the fourth lesson of this series is that prayer is surrender. It's not trying to bend God to our will. It's bending our will to God. C.S. Lewis says in the end, there are only two kinds of people. And there are those who say to God, your will be done and experience life and blessing. And there are those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done, who by their own choice choose to be separated from God forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Prayer. We thank you for teaching us that surrender comes before petition. We thank you for teaching us that prayer is not about trying to bend your will to ours, but bending our will to yours. Would you teach us that that is the pathway? As hard as it is, as costly as it is, that is the pathway to life and blessing. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.